This is Tony Roth, your host of Capital Considerations and CIO of Wilmington Trust. We're here today with a terrific guest, and we have an important topic, which is the state of the housing market. And so if you have shelter, if you're seeking shelter, or even if you don't have any form of shelter, but somehow against all odds, you still participate meaningfully in our economy and are interested in where inflation's moving, housing prices and equivalent prices for rents are very important in understanding the trajectory of inflation. So a really important topic to talk about today. And our guest is, uh, as I mentioned, a terrific guest on the topic. His name is Dr. Orfe Divungi, and he is a senior economist at Zillow. His job essentially is to help the firm understand uh, market developments that shape the housing market and the narrative that Zillow might have at any given moment. Dr. Devange joined Zillow after previous work focusing on labor markets, housing, and using various quantitative methods to evaluate the housing market. And he's also an experienced podcaster himself. He co-hosts a podcast called Everyday Economics. Great title. And like ours, his podcast focuses on ways that the global markets and economic phenomena affect the world around us. Um, and so, Dr. Devange, um, thank you so much for joining today. Oh, thanks for having me. So we can start in so many different places, and I want to really get into understanding where the housing market is, where it's going. I want to talk about the rental market. There are various stats in the in the marketplace that tell us that affordability of housing is at an all-time low, given how, how high housing prices have moved and given how quickly mortgage rates have increased. Really hard for people to go out and, and buy a house, um, even if you're fairly well off, um, unless you're paying in cash. It's probably not going to be a, a pretty sight in terms of monthly payments. And rents continue to actually climb um, from these levels. So a tough housing market and one that really impacts inflation. So before we jump into it, I think we should level set and make sure everybody understands who Zillow is. We've all heard of Zillow, but not everybody necessarily knows what Zillow's role is in the real estate system in this country. So Orfe, maybe just level set for us, um, Zillow. Who are you guys? What do you guys do? The role of Zillow is to try to make home a reality for more and more people. Our mission is to help people get home. And so we provide a marketplace. We want to be as transparent as possible. We are helping buyers, sellers, and agents to get to their destination as painlessly as possible because we know buying and selling a home is extremely complex. And so we want to help. Sometimes I'll catch my wife looking at Realtor.com for chalets in some place like Malibu or um, maybe maybe um, Hawaii. But and I know it's more fantasy than reality, unfortunately. But are you guys do the same thing? Could she just as easily be looking at Zillow or, or is your business model different? She could easily be looking at Zillow to see uh, houses of all types. Dreaming is part of the process. You start with dreaming and then you start to think about what, what can I do to get into the home of my dreams, right? Terrific. So let's get into the housing market. As I mentioned, housing prices, while they've started to come down, they're really high. In your estimation, why did the housing market become so elevated? Was it primarily due to the hyper low interest rates that we had? Or was it that so many people wanted to have a second home or a different home due to the pandemic? What drove the, the that vast increase? Because it's different than the great financial crisis where there were so many speculators buying two, three, four houses. That wasn't as prevalent. So what is it? It's a combination of factors. Even before the pandemic, we had about a, a decade, I, was, I want to say 15 years of underbuilding, 
right? We were not building enough units to house everyone in the United States. And so that was the, I think that was the first big issue is that builders, for a number of factors, maybe related to the global financial crisis, were not building uh, as many homes as we needed to build uh, in the U.S., and then you had a demographic shift, you know, millennials, uh, you know, and Gen Z coming of age, starting families. So this demographic shift also boosted the demand for housing. Then you also had low interest rates. So we know that low mortgage rates reduced the financing cost, the cost of financing a home. And then you had the fiscal stimulus due to the pandemic, which boosted incomes. Americans are basically getting all that income. And then we're told not to go out and spend it. And so savings increased tremendously. And so you had, you know, all of those factors. Stock market wealth is another factor. I mean, we had stock market records broken before and during the pandemic. And all those factors combined helped to push up the demand for housing. And unfortunately, builders are caught flat-footed, right? So we, without building, keeping up with the demand, the increase in demand, prices soared. So you're not talking just about starter homes. You mean starter homes, luxury homes across the board, just not enough new supply coming into the market? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, you have on every single price tier, you saw an increase in demand and, and competition, extreme competition at every level, bidding wars, a lot of wealth coming into the United States as well, right? Pushing up uh, at the high end, prices at the high end. We saw this rapid increase in prices throughout the pandemic, and recently, I think back in uh, October, November, uh, the Fed chair came out and said, look, you know, uh, maybe we made a mistake in not raising rates fast enough. And we saw this reversal in Fed policy that pushed mortgage rates uh, very rapidly, I think at the fastest, uh, fastest speed in recorded history, from roughly 2.5% to uh, over 7% today. Yeah, and also I would throw in longevity as another factor. Um, lifespans in the U.S. are actually increasing. Um, and ironically, with the pandemic, that sort of sloped upwards a little bit. The, the second derivative has actually accelerated, if you will, of longevity in the U.S. And, and that's also probably keeping people in their homes. So when you look at all of that and you talk about that reversal, Orfe, we've had a total reversal of monetary policy. You just described it for us. Mortgage rates over 7% from two and change. And you also have total reversal of fiscal policy, which is a drag on it, the economy now. So why, why aren't we seeing home prices come down faster or are we seeing them come down? What we expected was a much faster deceleration and maybe even a, 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 slide, a faster slide in home prices. But home values are, are, are kind of sustained at, at pretty high levels. Fed policy is a, a blunt instrument. Right. So what we saw is the increase in mortgage rates not only pushed out many potential home buyers, right, the demand side, but also the supply side, because it makes financing new investments, building more expensive. And, and for existing homeowners, it means they're not willing to trade uh, low rates for higher ones because they're all 71 percent of sellers end up buying again. That's fascinating. So. I could be trading up, I could be trading down, or I could be trading sort of horizontally into a new geography. But if I'm going to have to trade into a new home that's going to have my monthly payments skyrocket because either the home prices have gone up since I last purchased and or rates have clearly skyrocketed, 
it's going to lock me into where I am. And very little incentive to go back on the market right now. In fact, new listings are down 16% when compared to this time last year. The men fell by more than supply. My estimates are about roughly 32% decline in demand. Uh, so inventory is going to increase because of the demand falling by more than supply means inventory will increase, but uh, it's not increasing fast enough, right? So it's not when you look at month supply that you know how fast it would take to sell the housing stock today uh, at today's uh, sales pace, it's still much below than it was before the, the pandemic. Of course, there are some exceptions. The housing markets that were extremely expensive in the Austins and Seattles, those are places that are seeing rapid inventory increases and faster price declines. But most of the country is still not, in terms of inventory, still nowhere near the, the pre-pandemic level. Well, that's interesting. I would have thought that the, some of the markets that were very hot, whether they were driven by the salt repeal uh, and migration of folks out of high-tax jurisdictions to places like Austin or Florida, I would have thought that those jurisdictions would have stayed pretty high. That's not what you're saying? No, not at all. I think that what happened was as people moved and demand surged, builders responded. And builders responded in a major way. You look at places like Austin, you know, you had a surge in home building. You had a lot of housing that was started because of supply chain troubles. You had a lot of housing that were started in 2021 that are just being completed today. And, uh, and they're coming on the market at a time where demand has pulled back. And so you're seeing a surge in inventory in some of these areas, and that is what's driving the slide in, in house prices uh, in those expensive markets. That, of course, combined with the fact that they were really expensive already. And so a low affordability means that the places that are the most expensive are going are gonna to see uh, the biggest slide in demand. Where are we in the cycle around new home construction with developers? Because you talked about the fact that they were really slow after the great financial crisis to, to rebuild, given the pain that they had endured. And that's understandable. Absolutely. But now with the supply chain problems that have occurred, I would have thought that they would be at this stage, the last couple of years and going forward, pretty sluggish as well in terms of bringing new, new inventory online. Is that what you're seeing? Or ironically, given the deceleration in the economy and, and the, the demand softness for housing, um, are they actually increasing their activity? W what's going on there? Builders are basically telling you where they think the men's going to be tomorrow, right, next year. And, uh, and so they're not going to build. We're seeing construction starts, housing starts fall back. Building permits fall back, right? They're down compared to last year. Builders are pulling back because they understand that with affordability falling so far and, and housing demand falling, you know, the men not, might not be there in 2023. They're not willing to take that chance, right? They're not willing to take the risk. And so they're pulling back uh, big time. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that we're seeing some building in the multifamily sector, the increase in multifamily units coming on the market, which might be a good sign for renters in the, in the years to come. Well, and that's a really important point because there's a strong correlation between the, the rent market and the home market. And sometimes one leads the other. But in this cycle, what we're seeing is, you know, both have really accelerated or, or elevated from a price point. Uh, rent costs are just skyrocketed. And while we're seeing home prices come down, we're not seeing rents come down, as I understand it. And the rental market is much smaller than the home market overall. I think that it's a three to one or four to one ratio in terms of the number of people in the country that live in an owned home versus a rental. 
but rental prices are still really important in the overall inflation picture. So where do you see home prices going, Orphe, in the next six to 12 months? And where do you see rental prices going? Yes, I think I think it's more likely that rents will continue to increase uh, in the near future. And that's for, for a number of factors. We either you start with a massive housing unit deficit. And even though builders started picking up their building activity, the fact that affordability has fallen down and that demand has pulled back, builders have decided to pull back. And so it means affordability challenges are here, are here to stay. Now, on the in the rental market, there are a couple of factors. First, rent growth peaked in February. So the good news is rent growth is now slowing for a combination of factors. One, uh, I think incomes with inflation being so high, uh, renters are now starting to push back on landlords and saying, look, I can't afford this, right? And so you have some demand coming down, but also you have some supply coming up, right? You have an increase in supply in the rental markets because, of course, it was a great time to be a landlord with rents increasing so much. And so the combination of these two factors is going to pull down rent growth. And so we're going to see rent continue to increase, but at a much slower pace than they have during the past year or so. Historically, rents follow house prices. The owner market leads the rental market. And so you are seeing home prices for single family homes. You're seeing those come down, condos, et cetera. So where do you see home prices again by the end of next year? How far down do we have to fall, do you think, in this market? It's very hard to predict where they're going, but it's going to take a massive, massive shock to bring down home values to their pre-pandemic level. Yeah, you're right. So you have to understand that the typical home saw 40, 40% appreciation in the last couple of years during the pandemic. Homeowners have better credit, lower dirt, debt servicing as a share of income. A strong labor market today, we saw uh, an increase in job openings by 437,000, yeah. right? That Which was is, a little bit depressing in it's terms crazy. of the inflation story, right? So right. just so everyone understands what Orphe's talking about, we had a number that came out today. Um, today's November 1st, the recording date. And that number reflected an increase in job openings of almost a half a million, which is not good for inflation because it means that in the dynamics of supply demand dynamic for labor, there's relatively more demand, more job openings. And that means that wages are gonna to continue to have significant pressure. Uh, and that's not good for, for inflation, but that's a separate podcast. <laughs> but it's related because it means that, you know, what's interesting is that um, real wages have been dropping. So even though wages are going up, because inflation is so high after inflation wages, real wages, they're dropping. And that's the reason, as you explained to us, that there's some downward pressure on rents, not enough to push them down, uh, but enough to, to, to slow the speed of uh, increases. That's right. Renters are saying, look, I'm, I'm not going to move and face the much, much higher rent. I'll just stay put where my rent increase will be much lower. That's what we're seeing in the rental market. But but going back to what my story, homeowners are comfortable. They don't have, right, they're, they're low rates. It's going to be very hard to lose your job right now, right, uh, for yeah. most Americans, uh, and, and not find another one. It would take a massive shock to bring home prices down rapidly. I mean, they're, you know, they're still, year-over-year prices are still up, are still in positive territory. Uh, there's too much upward pressure with new listings falling back. There's still too much upward pressure on prices 
to prevent the kind of crisis that we saw before the global financial uh, crisis. Which is troubling news as it relates to the economy because the kind of shock you're talking about is probably not even a, a mild recession, but more of a severe recession where you lose three to five million jobs in the economy and all of a sudden you start to see more of a collapse in demand, if you will, to bring prices down. And that's not gonna happen in our view Today's environment is a little bit different, right? We talk about demand coming down. Before the global financial crisis, we had a bunch of distressed sellers coming on the market. Right. And that's what drove the price slide, right? Today, we're, we don't have that. I think I saw a stat, 49% of realtors were dealing with a distressed seller back in 2007, 2006, 2007, uh, whereas today, the number is only 1%. Interesting. Right? So, so, you know, sellers are comfortable. And until we see a massive surge of inventory across the country, it's going to be hard to see the price slide, one that's similar to the one that we saw uh, before the global financial crisis. And I want to talk about the macro a lot more and how the housing market feeds through into the inflation story. But before we get into that, tell us real quickly, a lot of our listeners do have second homes or are interested in second homes on the beach and so on and so forth. Is that market pretty much parallel to homes for wealthy folks across the country or is there something different going on there as well? I love that question. I think you're seeing really expensive markets, seeing massive surges in inventory and prices start to slow down. The second home market, I think there's less appetite for a second home right now across the board. And by the way, wealthy uh, the wealthy are more responsive to prices, more responsive to changes in interest rates. Uh, and so they want a more liquid housing market. They want to be able to buy and sell more rapidly. They're going to put their assets in a safer place or in a place where they think, okay, well, I'm going to second, the second home market is not very attractive right now. But if you're in the market for a second home, you're probably going to see some nice discounts because it's getting very, very expensive. Uh, to keep a second home. So that's an area where you are seeing some price movement, more so than in, in primary residences. Absolutely. By the way, another report we put out recently was a million dollars doesn't get you very much anymore, right? Even in the very high-end markets, houses are getting smaller, right? right. So you, pay, you put a lot of money uh, into a home, but you're not getting the type of space that you used to. If we're seeing these shifts, and uh, competition is very strong at the bottom relative to the top. Even though demand has come down at every price tier, competition remains stronger at the bottom relative to the top because people are just shifting down, especially okay. the ones at the top. They're, they're very responsive. So they're, okay, well, let's move down uh, to something that makes more sense in the current environment. So why is it that as a technical matter, and I'm, I'm the one at a bank, so it's a question that I, that I could answer too, but I'm going to ask you the question. Why do you see, as rates go up, you see that the spread between the benchmark rate and actual 30-year mortgages increases faster? Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about why that is? You're the one at the bank, but I have some theories about that. You basically have uh, lenders pulling back, I think, on, uh, in terms of buying up mortgage-backed securities. Even though delinquency rates are still very low, and by the way, if the risk-free rate goes up, right, if less risky assets become more attractive, you have to get compensated for going out and taking on more risk. And, uh, and so uh, with that in mind, 
mortgages are going to have to tick higher and higher in order to attract lenders into that space. Uh, so that that's what I, one of the reasons why I think this is uh, this could be happening. But also the idea that maybe in a year or two, uh, people might be refinancing very rapidly if rates fall again could be on the market's mind right now. Yeah, I mean, what we see is that the market for mortgage-backed securities is not nearly as strong as it has been. It's not shut down, but it's, of course, I mean, that's a market that's, right. that's pretty much always open. But it's not as, as strong as it has been as the purchasers of those securities are worried about a, a cycle that involves a recession um, and higher default rates on those kinds of securities. And, and that is impacting, I think, the enthusiasm for banks to lend into the market. And so they're, they're looking for higher returns as they expect to see That's the right. economy slow. That's right. You have to get compensated sufficiently to take on that. Why would you take on that risk when the 10 year is paying what it's paying now and there's no real incentive? And of course, it makes me scratch my head a little bit because delinquency rates are very low. They're lower than they were before the pandemic. And consumer credit's really good. You wonder why lenders are pulling back so much. But yeah, that's that's the story. So even if we do have a mild recession next year, which in our view is 50-50 at this point, you still don't expect foreclosures to move materially higher than they are now, very, very low rates. Look, I, if you can afford your mortgage payment, which most Americans can because they were locked into these really, really low rates, if you can still afford to pay the monthly mortgage, you have no incentive to put your house up for sale. And so I don't think we're going to see the kind of distressed sales that we saw uh, before the global financial crisis uh, as a result of a mild recession. You would have to have big, big income shock to get people to, uh, to, to basically get rid of that sweet deal, right? The golden handcuffs that are those 2.5% mortgage rates. Exactly. So one of the trends that typified the pandemic where people getting out of urban environments due to the concentration of people, the density, they wanted to move away from density. It felt safer. Some of that's been reversed. I was in New York City over the weekend and boy, it was it hopping. But what do you see from a housing market standpoint? Is the suburban housing market still benefiting from that pandemic tailwind or is it totally reversed itself? We had a, a nice, interesting piece of research that actually showed it, it wasn't necessarily just suburban. It was basically people wanted more space, more amenities for less, right? A bigger bank for their buck. So they moved to, to the suburbs. They moved to other markets mm -hmm. where they could get more space, right, right. Uh, for less. That makes sense. So that's, right? And so that's really... That's you needed really more important. space away from your, your your partner or your spouse, right? You got <laughs> to right? one person in the East Wing, one person in the West Wing. I used the pandemic to get a gym, to put a gym in my house, right? right? And so that, you know, I needed that space. We were stuck at home, right? And so you needed a home office, you needed a gym potentially. So that's really what happened during the pandemic. So I don't think, I don't think there's going to be some sort of reversal, a trend reversal here or anything like that. Uh, you have work from home that's here to stay. Right. Uh, for the most part, I think young people will always be close, want to be closer to the cities. Uh, that's just that's just how it works. But uh, but I don't think we're going to see a big shift happening anytime soon. So, Orphe, because you're an economist, let me just digress with you for a moment and ask about work from home. Do you work from home? 
I work from home most of the time. I'm in the office a couple of days a week out of uh, choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I go in every day when I'm not traveling. What's really interesting is that there's a lot of data coming out now that shows that the productivity of the economy is in free fall. Right. There's a lot of thesis and speculation right. why that is. But one of them is that the productivity of work from home is taking a real hit on the economy. And on any individual person, no one's ever going to tell you or even necessarily perceive For it. For sure. They <laughs> right? They're not going to tell you if they believe it, and they're probably not even going to perceive that they're less productive. That's right. So it's hard That's to get out of our own way on this question. But do you think that the work from home is a contributor potentially to this, this sort of collapse in productivity? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you, look, it, it, to be fair, you look at American time use survey data and you see that people were uh, working more during the pandemic, but not working necessarily on their their job. That's what you end up having. You have people working more, not necessarily working more on the job, working more on other things as well. Right. Taking care of loved ones and family members and children. But no, I don't think the productivity slowdown is necessarily related to work from home. This productivity growth slowdown has been going on for almost 20 years, a little over 20 years, I want to say. Since about 2000, we started seeing this massive decline in productivity growth. Part of it is labor productivity. And I, and I, again, I think that our education system has a lot to do with it. In fact, I think work from home might actually be a good thing. I know at Zillow, we have people working different hours. You have people who work better at night and people who work better in the morning. And so you're getting better, more productive workers when you allow them to pick the times where they feel they're the most productive rather than uh, the, the traditional nine to five. Now, of course, there's some downsides. And part of the downside is if you have fewer interactions with more senior, more experienced colleagues, uh, you may not pick up the type of capital on the job, right? Human capital on the job that you would have picked up if you had been in an yeah. office interacting with more senior colleagues uh, who are more experienced. Well, yeah, and we'll take this up on another conversation. My experience is a little different because we are a business that requires deep collaboration in order to understand right. and interpret the world. And by not being together, we just don't get that kind of interaction and interpersonal engagement, which I think is a foundation for, for a professional, the kind of professional existence that we have as investors. Um, so it's good. But I do think it's going to be one of the big questions that we're, that corporate America is going to be struggling with right. here for the next several years, at least. Um, it really will be. Okay. So one of the things that we struggle with talking about struggling is understanding where the economy is going from an inflation standpoint. Well, there's two areas of the data that are really persistent, one more concerning than the other. One is wage growth and the fact that wages continue to an upward movement, even though real wages are, are, are actually declining, nominal wages just keep on growing. And that's very inflationary, flows through to services and services are the, are the most inflationary part of the economy right now. And that's, that's all right. wage-based. The other is, is housing. And it's interesting because the inflation reports come out, Orphy, and then when it, each inflation report hits, there's a lot of hand-wringing around, well, the, the, the housing market is actually much weaker, but it takes a long time for the numbers to flow through. That's because right. One person will sell their home, and then they'll have to go into contract. Then they have to actually realize the sale in 90 days. And then even after the sale is realized, it takes a while to get filed. 
and then to show up in the data. It could be a five or six month process. But what you're telling us is actually something different as I'm understanding it. It's not that primarily that there's this big delay. It's just that we're not even seeing the real weakness in the housing market and we shouldn't even expect to see the real weakness in the housing market. So from an inflationary standpoint, where the data is going, um, that's not going to become sort of a, a, a turning point or a bright spot as we get to 2023, because we're just not seeing a meaningful change in housing dynamics. No, I, I mean, you have to understand the Fed is looking at the consumer price index, right? The way shelters calculated in the consumer price index really matters. So they impute rents for existing homeowners. So when sure. we think of inflation, right, we think of the pace increase in consumer prices. And so because rent growth is slowing. It's disinflationary. It, exactly. So, so what, what I'm basically saying is that the Fed is looking at the wrong thing. CPI rent is still increasing rapidly, but the market, market rents are increasing at a slower pace. And what, what is that pace today? So I think it was, last time I checked, it was about 12%. Uh, it was, I think it was 16% in February, something like that. And so- And that's the market rate or the CPI rate? That, that's the market rate, right? Okay. And so- The CPI and so, rate is even higher than that. And so the CPI rate is increasing faster. And so like you have, yeah, it was like 19% or something like that, I think, last reading. When does the market rate get down to a level that's consistent with historic trend? for rate increases. When does it become disinflationary enough that it really helps to change the inflation oil tanker in a different direction? No point. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's very it's a very difficult question to answer. In the latest GDP report, what we saw is uh, signs of trouble. <laughs> Residential investment plunging over the past year. Consumer, personal consumer, consumer spending uh, slowing down. Still very strong, but slowing down uh, tremendously. Uh, and then the story about net exports. Look, I think the Fed is realizing that the economy is slowing down and there's trouble brewing ahead, but they are not going to turn the ship around until they see it in the in the inflation, in the CPI numbers. Uh, and at that point, it could be too late. So it's a, it's a one-year lag before market rents are reflected as rent equivalencies in CPI. And they're not going to change how they do that. So that's right. we're approaching the end of 2022. Rents are still increasing at a very high pace. If you go forward six months, what's the outlook? Well, you know, we have we have a survey of experts uh, that, you know, where we where we basically ask questions of experts, and rent growth is likely going to be uh, rents are going to continue to increase. They're just going to increase at a much slower pace. And so that's kind of our outlook uh, going forward. Uh, in terms of the macro economy, uh, we don't do any kind of macro forecasting for the most part. But my take on this is that the Fed should really pay attention to market rents. Uh, because when market rents start to come down rapidly, at least the growth rate of rents start to come down, come down rapidly, that should raise a lot of questions about, uh, for the Fed about you know, where the economy is currently and where it's going. Uh, I really think that we're going to see growth in CPI rent start to come down in mid-2023. And at that point, hopefully, we're still on stable ground. With the labor market numbers that we're seeing right now, 
it seems like there's still upward price pressures coming and that we're not likely to see the inflation print come down tremendously for the end of, at the end of this year and the first, first and second quarter of 2023. Uh, you also have to add something I've been tracking a lot, looking at a lot, is all these climate disasters exacerbate supply chain issues. The uh, Mississippi River drying up uh, was another big news item. You have Hurricane Ian, the destruction of valuable productive infrastructure and necessary housing in those spaces. You have the wildfires in the West and the droughts. Uh, all of these issues actually are fighting the Fed. And they're inflationary because they impact. That's right. They, they increase demand and they, and they, they act as a downward supply pressure shocks. on supply chain. That's right. M massive supply shocks. And so uh, the Fed has to worry about all that. I think climate climate risk is a is an economic risk. And so while the Fed is intent on bringing down demand, prices might not come down as 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 fast or as soon as uh, as soon as we hoped. If we look at core CPI, I believe that shelter accounts for about a third of the total of core CPI. Is that about right? That's correct. So, without seeing a significant movement in shelter. It's tough for CPI to come down too quickly. That's because right. It comprises such a big component of it, of, of the core. And that's what the Fed tends to focus on. That's right. In it's, fact, we saw Powell came out and said, hey, it's, he wants to bring, bring down the feverish housing market. And when he talks about pain, right, you know, he's mostly referring to the housing market, unfortunately. But again, the housing, we talk about housing market, but there are many housing markets across the country. And, uh, and and so some places are not we're not as bad as other places. Once we start to see prices come back to earth in in some of the places that were overheated, things are going to get back to normal. So, unfortunately, we're out of time. But there's a couple of things that I think are really remarkable that I take away from the conversation, Orfe. Which is number one is that the speed with which interest rates went up has had not just sort of a chilling effect on demand, but also a, chill, a chilling effect on supply as people That's are locked in, um, maybe even unexpectedly, all of a sudden they find themselves locked into their current housing situation. I think that's really fascinating. It's the story of the moment, you know, we've never seen that really in the past. It essentially means that notwithstanding the record low level of affordability, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna get the churn in the housing market that we would expect that would lead to lower prices that would allow the clearing price for homes to, that's to right. drop, right? So that's that's one critical takeaway. I think the other critical takeaway is this idea that because the Fed is looking at rents so carefully, um, but rents are continuing, even though they're they're somewhat disinflationary now, they're still growing at a rate that's much too high relative to. So when I say they're disinflationary, they're going at a lower rate. Year right. over year, it brings inflation down, but they're not dropping enough That's right. for the Fed to meet its target of 2% overall, right? We're talking right. double digits, and it's going to be some time before that happens. Um, and that's the second takeaway. So when you put all that together, maybe this is how we'll conclude. I'll give you a bite at this very big apple, which is, <laughs> as an economist, when you think about these housing dynamics, how big housing is a, as a component of CPI, do you become nervous that the Fed is going to continue to raise and have to create a deeper recession in order to get the sort of the breakage in the housing market that will allow that inflation to come down? 
A, because it may be necessary to bring the inflation down and B, because we're just not going to see it otherwise um, in the CPI numbers, given how strong the rent market is. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I worry about that. And I think there's, there's an alternative. Uh, and the alternative is for federal, state, and local governments to help the Fed bring down inflation. We're in a world of insufficient supply. And so demand destruction may not be the only way to get the job done. How realistic? So, I mean, it so, sounds so, theoretically attractive, but we all know that government, whether it's federal, local government, it moves very, very slowly in a very, very accretive way. And so, you know, the idea that they're going to just all of a sudden across have a wave of loosening of zoning and ordinances and all that kind of stuff, and all of a sudden the the builders are going to respond to that. I mean, it sounds nice, but probably not really going to happen at the scale, right? That's right. It's political pressure. It's people that are going to drive the change. Unfortunately, yeah, you're you're right. It's going to take a while, and uh, but that's that's really what we need to avoid the pain that we're facing, basically, with the Fed continuing to raise rates. That's a big issue for for our economy today, but also going forward. Okay, well, Orfe, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we've left a lot of loose ends, questions we don't have the answers to, which is inevitable in the, in the environment. I want to ask our listeners to go to WilmingtonTrust.com. You'll see shortly our capital market forecast show up in December. We take a lot of these issues on headfirst, particularly the issues around the labor market. And we will continue to engage um, on, on questions around inflation in the housing market and, and how this dynamic is likely to evolve. So thank you all to our listeners. Um, special thanks to, to Orphe and to Zillow for uh, having you today. And good luck out there, everybody. And we'll talk to you soon. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. The opinions of any guest on the Capital Considerations podcast who are not employed by Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank are their own and do not necessarily represent those of M&T Bank Corporate or any of its affiliates. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Third-party trademarks and brands are the property of their respective owners. Third parties referenced herein are independent companies and are not affiliated with m Bank or Wilmington Trust. Listing them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Wilmington Trust. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definition of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide or seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. 
M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risks including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial, agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other businesses and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. Copyright 2023 M&T Bank and its affiliates and subsidiaries. All rights reserved.